0: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone, Music Now. Really happy to be welcoming back to the show Questlove, who's at an amazing point in his career. His documentary, Summer of Soul, is a very likely Oscar contender. It, of course, uses footage from the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival to stunning effect. It's one of the greatest music documentaries I've seen in many years. It's really the start of a whole new path for him. He's also got a Sly and the Family Stone documentary in the works, as well as a bunch of other projects, as he discusses. There also is a new Roots album, and he digs into that as well. Plus, there is the Summer of Soul soundtrack album, and that's out right now, and it's incredible in its own right. So I start out by asking Questlove about an incident he writes about in his book, Music is History. Basically, he had spent a really long time putting together a playlist that traced the entire history of black music in America. And he was looking forward to playing this playlist at a party put together by President Obama. And in the end, despite all that effort, it didn't go over that well. As it happens, Obama himself came up to Questlove and said, hey, maybe you can play something a little more recent that the kids can dance to. And Questlove was actually a bit devastated by that. Let's get right into that interview. You've had that thing where you found you've had to change your DJ sets to make them resonate with younger people. And even Obama himself had to ask you to veer away from the playlist you spent... Play something
1: something from this uh, century? Yes. Yes.
0: Uh, (laughs) A playlist you spent probably months making that told the whole history of... Years. uh, Years. Years, Jesus. And how much... Did your fears of young people potentially not getting it hang over the making of Summer of Saul?
1: I mean, I've never, ever, ever thought of the word demographic in my music. I never thought like, you know, how to cast the widest net, you know, what's weird is that I think after that famous white house obama incident which is the first time i really took into account other people's feelings and emotions as far as like what i'm doing previously before it was more like i'm not saying that i come in the door like yes it's an honor for you you to see me and you're going to take what i give you but i think that maybe i didn't ever consider if this works like i never look up when i'm djing i'm only looking at my computer and i think that's more or less so that i'm not in my head if they're not dancing or or feeling it but after that incident then it's almost like everything i did i put through that filter because i didn't want to ever feel i never i've never done a project that i worked so hard on that just absolutely utterly failed that I thought was perfect. I think with this movie, the very first question I asked, which I never asked for any album, any concert, anything I've ever done in my life, was like, "Who, who is this movie for?" And I knew if 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 you're the fortunate few generation, like born before the fortunate few, is like before 1936, you know, if you're in your 90s or whatever, this this might hit you. Yeah, the likelihood of you being in the movie theater cheering on, I don't know. Baby boomers. I knew that was my sweet spot because you know they were teenagers then. So anyone 70, 60, you know, in 80s even, they'll get it. Generation X, we're definitely going to get it because we were raised by baby boomers. And due to sampling and due to just legacy and all those things, we know who those artists are. In terms of millennials, I mean millennials are now about to turn 40s. So I was like, okay, there's a reach there. But when I got to Gen Z when I got like past anyone who was uh, six years old when 9-11 happened. What's their take? What's their feeling? And I was grasping at straws. And there was a moment where I just thought like, damn, all right, Drake is following me. So maybe I can DM him and get him to talk about his uncle playing bass with Sly Stone. Like, it'll be my one Hail Mary pass, you know, to the other end. Then a, a weird thing happened. And that's called Life After March 16th, 2020, in which, you know, you couldn't tell the difference between our stock footage of 1969 and what was happening in real time in 2020, between the election insecurity, between COVID, and between, you know, George Floyd definitely being a watershed moment for Enough is Enough. And suddenly it hit me like, duh, like you don't have to pander... gen z because they're living they're living these exact same conditions right now The story basically just told itself like again if this were 2017 or 2019 when the 50th anniversary was it would have probably just been uh, a straight ahead story if we just released it last month it would probably been a different outcome so yeah timing was everything for this film Everything. I
0: think, I think it was the editor of the movie who said that he was once in a group that was influenced by the Bomb Squad, and that he brought that influence to the rhythms of this movie, and that, that fascinated me. That you must have loved that. Needless to say, you know, it's you know, it's weird. Oh, jo- Joseph Patel
1: is my producer. When Joseph and I were sort of speed dating, trying to figure out like who's on the team, I told him like you know the way that I edit records. Like I take almost two to three days to master and edit my records because every roots album appears almost like a mixtape. Like I, 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 I'm thinking of transitions in the same key, same BPM. So there's almost like a rhythm when it comes to how we do our interludes and our, our transitionings. I still believe in the long playing album, even though we live in a single society now. I make albums to be a listening experience, like an immersive listening experience. So I knew. We had to have the person, and he was like, "No, we got you know. Thank God we're at Radical. You have the perfect person here in Josh Pearson." And what's weird is, in my mind, I thought we were holding back because public enemy was on my mind, but I thought, okay, you know, every project I do, every project I do, it always starts with. What would the bomb squad do? Because you know, I was 16 years old when I heard it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. I had a, a part-time uh, summer job, my first real job that's not dealing with my dad's world of of drumming and and you know, that show business, oldies. I'm working at a like a fast food outlet called Big Al's. And the day that Nation of Millions comes out, my life. Told it was such a mind-blowing experience to hear that album for the first time. Like I will never experience that type of elation and joy ever again than the the day that I heard that record. And I got to the end of side one by the time I got to work. And man, when you know, I was I was cutting up fries. I was like preparing the milkshakes, and I was like trying to create excuses to like go in the freezer to hear like what does side two sound like? So I'd like sneak little two minute interstitials. Uh, Thompson, what are you doing in there? And I'm like, uh, nothing, I'm I'm just getting more potatoes <laughs> out the freezer. You know, <laughs> like you got enough. And by the time my lunch break came, I couldn't take it anymore. So I just, I went AWOL. I just, I was like, I'm never coming back. So I literally just quit without, I wanted to hear this record. So I went to Wawa to get a bunch of A batteries and I sat in the park for like the next month just listening to this record. And I said, This is this is my mission. So every project I do, every roots album, everyone, I'm like, okay, this is gonna be our bomb squad tribute record. This is gonna be the one. And it doesn't wind up being that, you know, they, you know, it winds up being something else. But I think with this particular project, I was saying to myself, okay, let me make this one normal. And then when I do the second one, when I do Sly in the Family Stone, that's going to be my Nation of Millions. Like, I'm really going to push the pedal. But once the film ended, Joseph was like, no, this is, this is kind of radical. This, this might be Nation of Millions. Like, you might have to work on Fear of a Black Planet for your next film. So I, I just didn't realize that this was so radical because people kept talking about, like, the rapid fire editing. And I don't know. It, it's just normalized to me because I grew up with the bomb squad. I grew up where you had to cram 30 samples in one song. So maybe I just hear different.
0: I know when you first saw the footage of Stevie Wonder playing the drum solo, you kind of knew that was the beginning of the movie. (laughs) What was your first reaction to it? You're already someone who had been known to blindfold yourself to play more like Stevie Wonder from time to time, so I can't really imagine anyone who was more suited to encounter that footage.
1: Well, Stevie opening the film, that's another result of timing. You know, March 16th, 2020, which was really an important day on the calendar for this movie. Everything was on the table. We completely just wiped off the table, so no more Harry Belafonte, no more Chambers Brothers, no more more Mavis Staples at that point. No more. Like we, we had totally wiped off the table. And I'm almost to the place where I was like, oh, no more movie. Maybe we'll wait for the 55th anniversary. Like, do we just put this on ice until Armageddon's over or what do we do? And everyone's like, no, we, we persist and we go through this thing like there's a way to, to do it. We learn what Zoom was. But here's here's the weird thing. So now I'm on a farm. With uh, my my girlfriend, you know, befriending these people that have like a nice spacious farm because, you know, if you're going to be in the apocalypse, uh, you don't want to be in a small New York apartment, (laughs) you know. And so we're on this farm and I would occasionally do focus groups and say, hey, guys, like I got a new cut. You want to give me some notes? And the thing is, is that if if I ever do focus groups with my music or with any project, I don't give it to. You know, I kind of follow Chris Rock told me that like he doesn't trust the response at like the comedy cellar in New York. Chris Rock will go to some town in Florida where no one cares about his comedy or, you know. And so I'm showing this family who's not in my demographic scope of who this audience is. And I'm getting their feedback. The patriarch of the family, David Zanders, his name says like, yo, where are you in this film? Like, why aren't you in this? And I was like, well, you know, I don't want to be self-serving. Like this is not the quest love summer. Of I don't I don't want to self-promote and attach myself to, you know, this is my chance to correct history. Like that's I'm being very fragile and careful with this. So he's like, Well, okay, so you're calling this a quest love, John, but you know, what what tells me that this is you? Like, what how do I know this is a quest love, John, and just not another Ken Burns? you know, uh, (laughs) kind of production here. I kept the footage running constantly for five months straight without turning off any monitor in my... And I remember what a moment that was to see that drum solo. And I was like, okay, this is probably my moment to do the show me this is your movie without you being in this movie moment. And so that's why I put that there. And, you know, that that was kind of the last days of little Stevie Wonder. And of course, in two years, you get full grown adult, 21 year old Stevie Super Superstition Wonder. But that intro with the with the drumming for me was the that was my presence in the film
0: that completely got across. But. It's interesting, just as a side note, and it, it goes to the idea of uh, Black history being erased, is that it's an Isley Brothers song that he's playing. And the Isley Brothers had another festival that same summer that people have also forgotten about it. It was a smaller thing, but it was a, it was at Yankee Stadium, the first Soul Brothers summer music festival. Yeah, I, I, I presume you know all about it.
1: This movie came out, what, July of 2021? Let's, let's go to September. By September, in my DMs, I knew when making this, you know, because even before this film, I'm the guy that's like combing on YouTube to see any soul performance before 1979. And it's almost so scarce. But I was like, I know there's no way you can tell me that people didn't document at least. There's got to be at least 100 concerts that have been properly documented. Like I know somewhere out there, man, let me tell you the amount of DMs I've got of which the owner of that Yankee Stadium moment, it was almost a thing where even though this particular festival, the Harlem Cultural Festival, wasn't connected to a label, but when you think of Watt Stacks that came out in 1972, like Mm. that's the Stacks organization, but also Stan Lathan, pioneering director, Emmy Award Emmy uh, director, Stan Lathan. his very first movie was called Save the Children, which was the Motown version of Watts Stacks in Chicago. So it's the Jackson Five, Marvin Gaye, Don Cornelius, the Soul Train hosted. it. There's a really heartbreaking moment with Sammy Davis Jr. sort of facing his audience, his black audience, after he you know, declared that he was Republican and supporting Richard Nixon. And he's like defiantly singing, I gotta be me. And it's a sight to see. Neil Bogart, the president of Casablanca Records, previously president and owner of uh, Buddha Records, did the same thing in New York City with at Yankee Stadium with all of his acts at on Buddha the Isley Brothers Edwin Hawkins singers Gladys Knight and the Pips like all of his Buddha acts so yes that footage is out there
0: yeah it, it was um, a theatrical movie it's your thing that that uh, is lo- I think that is somewhat lost but it must be the raw footage that
1: yeah uh, the the raw reels are 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 still out there and I have been. After July, then the complete, the doors have been, the the doors are off the hinges now. Of course, you know, I've made the announcement I'm doing Sly and the Family Stone, but you can only imagine how long the line is of people like, can you tell our story too the same way you told this story? So yeah, that project is being discussed.
0: (laughs) That's That much I can say. The, The Isley thing in particular, you mean? I've been approached. Wow, I've been approached. But, you, but you've been approached about fifty other things too, though. I guess
1: right now there are you know there are six six projects down the line that will probably keep me busy realistically to probably twenty thirty two. It's almost like if you guys have the patience to wait a couple of years, I can get to it. But yeah, the, the the door has opened and it's a new chapter in my life. As a storyteller.
0: I was wondering what's going on with the next Roots album. It's been a while there, obviously. We've
1: been, you know, since I can say that in Richard Nichols, our manager and producer, you know, somewhere between George Martin, Brian Epstein, Peter Grant, Suge Knight, (laughs) and Dr. Dre. (laughs) Like, Rich was everything. I didn't know how creative I felt after 2014 when he passed away. Like, our last album, And Then You Shoot Your Cousin, was really Rich's kind of his epilogue or his coda.
0: I'm going with the wind and for the ride, wish I could rest and open my eyes, but time ain't fly down from the sky, a place with a lonely love, Not
1: another- That was a personal album really about Rich leaving the earth like even though, you know, he wasn't too communicative in the last stages of his leukemia, you know, in the hospital he still gave notes and produced it, you know, his ears still worked, his fingers worked where he could communicate with us even though he couldn't talk. So just the last seven months of Rich's life was one, like his last hurrah was this Roots record. I think at the time I felt like satisfied, like, okay, well, we we could stop at number 16 and just call it a day and I'll do other things. So I think between like 2014 and maybe 2018, there was just, I didn't feel creative at all. And then when 2016 happened and all those deaths, especially with Prince, I didn't feel creative at all. Like I felt frozen. So, you know, I'll say now the one thing that Rich was a master of, which was telling us to stop and turn the damn record in already. (laughs) Right now, we, there's easily, there's easily 700 drafted ideas. Some songs completed, some songs like half baked. But I mean, it's like, what are the, what are the 14 songs from these 700 songs that we can't stop creating? you know, just the out, out overpouring of, of creativity has taken over us. So, you know, I promised my manager, Sean, that I will not do any more new ideas after December 31st. So (laughs) come January, we're going to mix this baby and it's going to be out in the first half of, of 2022.
0: How are you going to Um, mix seven? You have 700 things. What do you mean you're going to mix it? (laughs) Well, not, not mix it. It's just that,
1: you know, The thing the thing is, is that we never traditionally wrote songs the way that people write songs like we would just go to the studio and jam and jam and jam. Oh, that's cool. Let's do that. (laughs) And then here goes your song. You can't DJ for 40,000 hours in the last seven years and not be aware of song structure. I've noticed when I started doing Questlove Supreme and noticing that like, oh. All my favorite producers were DJs. And, you know, I I finally got to talk to, even though he's not on the the podcast, quote, yet. um, And talking to Dr. Dre, I realized that, oh, the reason why he's so spot on with his production is because he was a DJ under duress. If you play the wrong song, the club might get shot up. So can you you imagine the pressure you got to put on yourself to play the perfect song just to keep the peace for that night. So that does something to your creativity. And thus, like Dre's version of production is like, leave no stone unturned. This is as perfect as it can get. One, I'm more aware of what song structure is because of the amount of DJing that I've done in the last six years. Even though I've been DJing for 40 years, I've been paying attention for the last six. And ideas are just overpouring and and overflowing and it's just you know okay i know we last week's music was good but we listen to this idea and they're like yo this is dope let's do this and then it has to replace something and so that's how you fall into that quicksand it's just like one song replaces another song and one the new the new ideas from next month are better than what we did last month and so it's we're going to stop i'm going to stop in december 31st And we will just hammer in on those records. But also, it's like, I got to work on Sly. And Tariq is right now um, about to make his Broadway debut with uh, Black No More. So there's also that to deal with. So...
0: I mean, Doc Severtson was never a potentially Oscar-winning, super in-demand documentary filmmaker who also had a, a, a recording career and was an author. And I mean, at, at what point does the Fallon gig become inc- incongruous with the rest of, of your life, or, or do you just see it as, as fitting in forever?
1: No, nothing's forever. You know, currently it's not in the way of my creativity. And I don't even see it as Fallon more than I see it as I'm still a student at 30 Rock University. I don't waste a second when I go there. I'm always learning from our show. I'm constantly on the eighth floor at SNL. When SNL's in season, you know, I, I've bugged Higgins a gazillion times about like, dude, can I, can I be an intern up here? Like I just want to. For me, the most fascinating part of watching SNL is watching them put SNL together. I personally want to hang on to it until it, it is time to and you know, everyone has that moment in life where you know, the, the roots were at that moment in 2008 where it's like, "Wait, you, you want to give this all up for something unknown." But I think what I'm trying to prove by life example, oftentimes our passion. Becomes our fight or flight. We have a passion. This is something that we would do for free. This is something that we, you know, do with absolute joy in our hearts. And then once you get into once you once you immerse yourself into that passion, and then it catches on and becomes a thing, suddenly you're clutching to your per- pearls, you're hanging on to it, and you're you're protective of it. If someone else does the same thing, you're even more protective of it. And then it, it, it turns into an obsession and then it might turn ugly. And for me, I think I'm more about is the big question I'm trying to ask is, is creativity transferable? You know, is, is food and comedy and music and movies? I think if anything, I'm kind of a rolling stone and my curiosity is my North Star. I'm curious about, you know, I'm a cat dad now, so maybe I'll might want to be a veterinarian soon. I don't know. So it's just, that's what I'm about. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't entirely rule it out. You know, once I, the, the one thing that I did that I obsess about that I'm not too, you know, stand up comedy. Um, but I, I did stand up comedy only. First of all, I did it in places where no one could track me down. Um, and I only did it, as a means to get over a fear of public speaking. Um, Our warm-up guy, Seth Herzog, at The Tonight Show, um, you know, I told him, like, how scared I was to teach class at NYU. Like, I've never had a situation where I didn't have someone to be a buffer. Like, you know, I could hide behind Tariq, I could hide behind Jimmy, but, or a drum set or a computer or books, you know, but, like, I'm facing 23 students. Like, what if one gets out of line? Like, how do I discipline them? Say, you know... He was like, Well, you know, come to an open mic, like just jump in the pool. And so that's exactly what I did. So I, there's, there's a brief chapter in my life for the summer of 2014, I think. Uh, 2000, no, summer of 2012, in which was doing every like underground hole in the wall open mic stand up showcase just to get over my public speaking fear.
0: I mean, you know, obviously David Chappelle is a friend and influence for you. And just when we think about generational transitions and new audiences, are there any lessons or concerns to be taken from the, the sort of battle he's found himself in?
1: Well, I mean, it's an exemplary lesson in terms of, and this often happens. Like I've seen this happen with rappers that suddenly find themselves in a position where their audience might be indifferent or challenge them to sit and think about what happens next. I've had that moment with myself. My moment with that was definitely, you know, that White House moment where I thought like, can't tell me nothing. Like, I'm a, this is why they pay me the big bucks. Like, you don't know, you don't know music. I know music, like I'm the expert here. And then one day, you know, you, you, you get checked and it's up to you. Whether or not you choose to listen and adjust or, you know, you kind of go with your modus operandi. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting to where he lands in this particular point of his life. And I think this is something that every artist goes through, where the world is your oyster and you're handed something. And then one day you realize that you have a whole nother demographic to deal with that doesn't relate to it, what do you do? I'm learning from that because I had my version of that maybe, you know, two years ago.
0: Meaning the, uh, meaning the Obama thing or meaning something else? No, no, definitely the Obama. Yeah. like the, the, the,
1: the Obama thing, like, crushed yeah. my soul. Like, I yeah. stopped DJing for eight months. I was depressed. And I will say that in, in my particular case, I'm wired to, and that's the thing, like, either I could just stay stubborn and be like, yo, dude, I'm, I'm fucking quest love. I know what I'm doing, or I can, or I can listen. And I, I listen to my my ledge talkers. Like I have five ledge talkers in my life. And you know, my manager is like, like, dude, you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like it's not the end of the world. You yourself wrote in your book that failure is, you know, like failure is not a four letter word. Like you're not going to throw your DJ career away just because you had one bad gig.
0: Again, I know you like Get Back a lot. I watch that sometimes with mixed feelings thinking about all the artists, all the other artists who could benefit from this kind of treatment.
1: Well, here to me is the true magic of those nine hours. I rolled at how Hollywood depicts the creative process. It would be a thing of, I'm not, I'm not remarking on the two Aretha films, but you know the Hollywood version of it would be like if, if someone, I gave an example, like Hollywood would have you think like on Halloween, princess sitting like backstage in a dressing room, sees like a Hershey's kiss on the floor. And it's like, Hey, I know, Kid, you know, or like someone bumps Aretha Franklin's shoulder. Like you better show me respect. Hey, wait a minute. That's the Hollywood version. And the true way that creativity starts is you have to go through old ideas. And when you're watching Paul McCartney, you're watching him rehash old Beatles songs. And I love the fact that they have to go back in their old catalog just to figure out new ideas. And that's how it happens. Like when when I did the the Voodoo album with D'Angelo, the first thing we did was, okay, what Prince album are we going to do right now? And we would just go through every Prince song. And then that one moment happens where it's like, Wait, wait, repeat that part again. That sounds dope. What was that? And then it morphs into, okay, change the key. All right, let's slow down a little bit. All right. Nah, 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 nah. And the next thing you know, a new song is born. Myself, the high you in the gray. And you see Paul McCartney do that with, you know, he goes to old Beatles songs and they cover it, or he'll go to some old Timpan Pan Alley, You know, he's very showbiz, Tim Pan Alley, Brill Building. With John Lennon, he is straight up like every three seconds, he is either referencing Little Richard, he's saying Wababaloo Bop, bop, La Bamboo, or he's referencing like Chuck Berry. The reason why that's super important for the world to see is because I know that the framing of what hip hop is, like, well, that's not real music. They're just taking other music and claim it as their own. But yo, dude, all that is, what we just watched for those nine hours, that's hip hop. That's them using other songs to spark an idea for another song. You know, if you look on the reel-to-reel of Fleetwood Mac's dreams, it still says, spinners, I'll be around the idea. On the on the reel-to-reel. So it's like, finally, you, you get absolute proof that the world's most loved band did their version of what Pete Rock and DJ Premier and Jay Dilla always did, which is you take old records and you try to make them into new records. And that to me is the important lesson in it all.
0: I mean, look at the opening lines of come together and the lawsuit that followed. So I mean <laughs> Exactly. That's that's interpolation right there. That's uh, exactly. close to sampling.
1: And um, it's also and it's also just magical to see like the, the moment where you know, to create under that duress. To me, the, the reason why I'm going to champion get back is because to be honest, like you know and I know the world's not going to pay attention until like the most respected canon in pop, popular music is the Beatles. And so now, for any naysayer of hip hop culture that says that, you know, it's stealing ideas from other songs, like we don't have the proof, like we can say all we want to about Led Zeppelin's situation with, you know, the amount of songs that they ripped off for like blues artists. But here it's the, the proof is there, and it's not even a, a gotcha moment like a uh ah, see, I told you those those guys still from black artists, but no, it's not it's just that's how creativity is like it's it's in your subconscious, and you're saying to yourself, you know what's my version of that? Stevie Wonder will admit that half of side two when he did I wish you know he's thinking of earth Wind, and fire, you know what I'm saying like it's that to me is how you're going to reach reach people so yeah i could say well you know why can't we praise these other canons which again i want to stress the fact to you that i have six or seven other projects down (laughs) the pike so (laughs) more than me like being a filmmaker i'm just i'm in the business of of correcting and restoring history i'm not I'm not just making movies, I'm correcting history. So all, all in due time. But if I'm so glad this, this, this project came out so that it makes,
0: it makes me look less crazier when I'm telling people this is how you create stuff. It's gonna send us on a sidetrack, but just the the chains of influence are, are so fascinating. It's like even with Zeppelin, it's like sometimes what they're ripping off is not the original blues, but rather some other white bands <laughs> rip-off of the blues is a more heavy influence. I, you know, like whole lot of lo- a whole lot of love is is actually ripped off from the small faces version of you need loving, which was unique, you know, the, and then and then I you know, as you mentioned the book, the hound dog story is a little more complicated than people wanna say. And it's not just that there were song writers who actually wrote the song, but there were all these intermediate versions by groups, both white and black, that Elvis was actually stealing from more than he stole from the Big Mama Thornton. When Hey Ya! first came out, my manager, Rich, when he was alive, said, wow, this is
1: is one of the first brilliant, ironic meta examples of how music evolves. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And he was explaining to me that basically you're watching a black guy being derivative of, I mean, you know, who, was he doing the kinks? Was he doing like wh- whatever his version of the 60s British invasion was, at least with the video. It's its like, he's saying that watching Andre 3000 be derivative of, of a British act that was derivative of a blues act from the 40s. So he's like, so you're basically watching a black man imitating a white guy that imitated a black man. That was my, and then after that point, that's when I started to get obsessed with how the the levels or the ripple effect of influence starts.
0: What to the extent that you can uh, say at this point is your vision for, for this slide documentary? Because uh, a lot of excitement for that.
1: There's so many angles to go to. I mean, you know, the, the, the Captain Obvious routes, you know, obviously this is the first intersectional band you know uh, i can delve off into the, the first demonstrations of funk the first drum machines but i was like okay what's what's the white elephant here in the room the white elephant here in the room is that i believe that sly is the seed or the origin of what we truly call the troubled art artist what happens when you try to force a square peg into a circle what what happens when Shut up and dribble doesn't work. And the thing is, is that, you know, I, this, project came, this project came to me in the weirdest way because when we're editing and, and working on Summer of Soul, I know that in 10 days, Sly's life is going to change with Woodstock. And, you know, I'm watching like, wow, you don't even know that in 10 days, your life is going to change. And then when that performance is captured on film, you're going to be God and this is going to be the most hellish two years of your life. And the results of this Woodstock performance that you're sound checking for now, it's more problematic. Like I know that we framed There's a Ride Going On as a masterpiece, as a funk masterpiece. It's it's a life-changing thing. Yes, it changed music, but I consider There's a Ride Going On, um, A I consider it, I considered it the first reality show. Like this is you watching someone have a meltdown, like clearly something isn't right and we're we're willfully ignoring it because the music sounds so good. But, you know, masking masking our emotions in our art is nothing new for black people. And so I feel like this is going to answer a lot of questions about artists that we have for today. And this is going to answer why blah, blah, blah gets arrested a lot. This is going to answer why blah, 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 blah gave up early and you haven't heard from them. Why do they take seven, eight, nine, 10, 20 years to make a a follow-up record? Why does blah, 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 uh, time management always crazy? Like Why are they always late for things? Why does blah, blah, blah have a, a, a drug habit? Like, I feel like that's, that's what I truly want to uncover here. I want to uncover the, the I want to humanize this story so that you, you get to see that there's show and there's business. It's going to be a, a, a weird story to tell because this isn't just about like the guy that wrote like these awesome nursery rhymes as funk and these crazy puns. And this his lyrical wizardry and, and all those things that we've come to love, his his cleverness and his brain. There's so much more under that surface. And I I want to investigate that. And hopefully this can explain any any other artist that's come 50, 50 years beyond, you know, this could explain a lot for how we perceive artists from Prince to Michael Jackson to Chappelle, you know, to to, to name them. This this
0: might explain it. Have you started talking to Sly himself?
1: Uh, coming into the project, what really reeled me in was the fact that his interview was done first. His interview was done before I came aboard. He did about seven hours of interviews. He's clear and concise. Revealed a lot that I didn't know about, you know. And he gets into it about, like, what rehearsals were like back then. His life as a deep, like, I didn't realize the influence that he had. <laughs> as a DJ in the Bay area. And the fact that, you know, like next to Timothy Leary, like Sly Stone in 1963, like has the ears of those hippies in Haight-Ashbury, in you know, in San Francisco. So he's the guy on the radio, that's the epicenter of cool, that's raising these future hippies. They're, they're 12 and 13 and 14 in 1962, 63, 64. So by the time that they're nineteen and twenty, like Sly has raised them, so they see him way different than we got to him. You know what I mean? So to have your to have one foot with you know the the Hate Ashbury hippie set that you're raising and grooming into hippies, uh, and then to have your other foot in Oakland, where the the Panthers are are starting their movement and, you know, to also to know how to talk business with your everyday, like this explains a lot about Sly's multiple personalities. He could be hippie one moment and black power the next moment and be a suit and a square one moment and then be totally hip the next moment, be totally romantic the next moment and to be a nightmare the next moment. Like this explains a lot about him. So yeah,
0: Sly's interviews are already in the can. All right, always a pleasure. Thanks so much, I'm so glad we got you.
1: All good, Brian, thank you, man.
0: Congratulations, you. Good, good luck with the, the Oscars. I'm, I'm feeling good about it. I appreciate it, thank you. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much to Questlove, Rolling Stone Music Now we will be back on Sirius XM volume, channel 106. And in the meantime, we are, of course, a podcast. Download us as a podcast, subscribe to us as a podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts that is always deeply appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening and we will see you next week.